to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Today, we're talking about some important outcomes of the recent elections in Northern Ireland, the curious case of info warrior Malcolm Nance, and much, much more. And later in our show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... You know, there was so much to take in for my week in Cuba, so much I'm still processing, but I wanted to share a few highlights with you while they're fresh in my mind. There were lots of signs on the sides of roads in Cuba, in the cities and the countryside, lots of billboards and small towns, lots of monuments to the revolution and to revolutionary heroes, and lots of signs of appreciation for the revolution. Some of my favorite signs were the one that read Cuba es el patria, or Cuba is the homeland. Uh, Fidel Castro, gracias por todos. Fidel Castro, thank you for everything. My favorite, I think, was unidos por la sangre y las ideas, united by blood and ideas. The grocery store shelves, now it's true, the grocery store shelves were empty, even in one of the larger cities, Santiago de Cuba. The stores do have limited supplies of some staples like cooking oil and flour, sugar, meats, and this is where you see the effects of the blockade, the criminal blockade the United States has imposed against the Cuban people for 60 years. How did they handle this? Where people are led into the stores in small groups to control the number of people in the stores. And that might be due to COVID, but also because of the food shortages, probably to monitor the stock. But people are orderly and you have to pay using a preloaded debit card. There are no cash transactions inside the stores. And because of the limited supply of some goods, people generally don't buy more than what they need. I'm not sure if there are restrictions on how many of a particular item can be purchased, but even with the shortages, it all seemed very orderly to me. The basic infrastructure in Cuba is obviously dated. Most of the buildings uh, throughout the country are basically stuck in 1959 when the revolution happened. And Wi-Fi in the country is spotty as the state owns the telecommunications company. So it cannot invest in the infrastructure needed to expand Wi-Fi due to the blockade. So people have to buy Wi-Fi cards in order to connect to the internet uh, and get close to a router to use that. These are the basic everyday ways that the blockade is felt by Cubans on an everyday basis. Another one of my favorite signs on the side of the road outside of a small town in Cuba, Somos Cuba. We are all Cuba. City work crews maintain public areas manually. There are no lawnmowers or weed trimmers or, you know, those big uh, John Deere-like tractors that uh, cut weeds and grass. No, it's all done by men with handheld sickles or machetes. 
Similarly, in the countryside, the expansive network of personal gardens are all tilled and sowed by oxen or horse-driven plows. You can see the beautiful patchwork of tilled rows on the steep hillsides of the mountains where no tractor would be able to maneuver at all. And this is yet another way that the blockade impacts the way people live in Cuba, where basic garden work, basic lawn maintenance in public spaces is done manually because the country cannot import the equipment needed to do the work on a large-scale basis. People who live in the rural areas, though, at least have a garden uh, of varying sizes, but most people also have chickens, and many people have horses, cows, oxen, sheep, and pigs as well. So even in the countryside, people are self-sufficient, growing their own food, and larger farms provide food that's distributed to nearby communities and throughout the country. And they're indicated by signs referring to the ANAP or the Asociación Nacional de Agricultores or the National Association of Small Farmers and Campesinos Produciendos por el Pueblo, peasants producing for the people. So every time I ate a meal in Cuba, I was reminded of those farmers and the food that they provided for my meal. Another sign on the road that I liked, Upon Le Cuba Corazon, Cuba is in my heart. And I think it is. Mask wearing in Cuba is practically 100%. It was very rare to see someone outside among other people without a mask on. In Santiago de Cuba, the neighborhood CDRs, or Committees in Defense of the Revolution, were incredible examples of community control over institutions. Providing for the needs of their residents, CDRs provide public health, education, food distribution, conservation, and community improvement. They're supported by the Cuban government. CDRs are an integral part of Cuban society. The organization is ordered on three levels, with the block level being the most basic unit, followed by the district and then the national levels. One neighborhood CDR we visited was Principe Bonanno, which was founded on January 28, 1994, the same day Jose Marti was born in 1863. At 28 years old, the Principe Bonanno's public council uh, was established after the revolution and served 29,000 residents. They have multiple schools and clinics serving their people, and their guiding principles are those based on the ideology of Jose Marti. There I met residents who showed off a Zumba class they hold regularly, had to be regular because those folks had those steps down cold, a karate demonstration, and a lovely performance put on by the girls and boys of one of their primary schools. The second CDR hosted an evening party for us. The residents made us a delicious mutton and were generous with the drinks. There was lots of music and dancing and a lot of engagement and excitement to talk with the people about their Cuba. This is where I met a lady named Janice who opened her home to us. I asked Janice what she would say to people in the United States who believe that the Cuban government forces them to welcome us and forces them to throw us these parties and forces them to participate in the massive May Day parades. Janice said bluntly, that the American government lies to the American people, and that's sad. 
She then said that the people of her neighborhood live together like a family. And then she said the people in Cuba largely live together like a family, too. What Cubans want, Janice said, is to live together with the whole world like a family. She said the people in Cuba love the revolution and it is strong. The people are strong. Nobody makes them love Fidel, Che, and Raul and the revolution because the revolution is theirs. Then her father, the elder man in the house, was very excited to show us all of his medals and recognitions from fighting in the revolution. He talked about his service in Algiers. He said the Cuban people always had a bond with the African people, and Fidel and Che showed that. He was particularly excited to show me the pictures of him alongside African freedom fighters. Janice's across-the-alley neighbor, Nancy, was very happy to introduce her children and her two dogs to me. I told her that her dogs were her babies, like my fur baby, Brewski, is to me. And I showed her a picture of Brewski, and we chatted about our fur babies and had a lovely time. The people danced with us, shared their food and drink with us, and asked if we were coming back, when we were coming back. They asked if we felt like family, if we felt like Cubanos. I sure did. I think my favorite, absolute favorite roadside sign reads, Si el presente es de lucha, el futuro es de victoria. If the present is one of struggle, the future is one of victory. I agree. Follow Lukman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on as we discuss the great news of the impending release of U.S. political prisoner Sundiata Akoli, granted parole after 49 years. And we are happy to be joined for this conversation by Nino Brown, an elementary school teacher and organizer with Reds in Eds and the Boston Jericho Movement. Nino, thanks so much for joining me. Please, thank you for having me. Absolutely, and really glad that you're joining us on this occasion when we're talking about the release, the upcoming release of Sundiata Akoli, granted parole after 49 years in prison. Uh, and the Supreme Court, the New Jersey Supreme Court's decision regarding uh, Sundiata's case, I think is really striking in calling out or highlighting the way parole boards have been acting with impunity uh, toward uh, anyone who is locked up in the system, but particularly toward political prisoners. Because for years, the parole board in Sundiata's case claimed that by a preponderance of the evidence uh, that there's a substantial likelihood that Akoli will commit a crime if placed on parole. But the New Jersey Supreme Court said that <laughs> that just wasn't true. There was no preponderance of any evidence that uh, there was a substantial likelihood that uh, Akoli would have committed a crime 
were he granted parole when he was actually eligible for it decades ago. So, I mean, tell us more about uh, Akoli's fight with the parole board and how this case made its way to the New Jersey Supreme Court. Yeah, definitely. Um, first off, I want to give a huge thank you and shout out to all of the faith leaders, all of the family members, uh, Sandra Fisher, Deborah Fisher-Hayman, uh, Elise Squire Fisher, his sister, um, you know, Reverend Lucada Mujimbe, uh, and the many other, you know, activists and community members, family, friends that have been pushing for Sundiata's release for decades now. You know, as you mentioned, you know, in the fall of 1992, Sundiata did become eligible for parole, uh, and he was not permitted to attend his own parole hearing. Uh, was only, you know, allowed to participate via telephone. Uh, and despite, you know, his prison work, right, his uh, upstanding model of, uh, of of being in prison, his academic work, his disciplinary record, his uh, various job offerings in the computer science profession, right? Sundiata was a mathematician. Uh, he's a computer scientist and analyst. Uh, despite, you know, thousands of letters on behalf on his behalf, you know, Sundiata was denied parole in 1992. Uh, and instead, you know, after a 20-minute phone call, uh, he was given about 20 more years uh, to his already, you know, 30 years he was initially given, uh, which was the longest in New Jersey, you know, history. So he had to do, you know, 12 more years after that. Uh, and the parole board, you know, they had stated uh the reason that they gave him those 20 extra years was because of his membership in the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army. Uh, and, you know, we characterize him as a political prisoner, as a prisoner of war. Uh, and, you know, I think the state recognized that Sundiata was not just, you know, a social prisoner, that he was a political prisoner, that he his political beliefs were strong and steadfast. Uh, and should he be released, right, uh, he would likely go back into the struggle, back into the movement. Uh, I mean, I remember in 2018, Sundiata published a piece on awakening resistance, you know, still with a, a sharp criticism and analysis of the Donald Trump regime and its, you know, impending war on Russia and China. Uh, you know, so this this is only four years ago, you know, so this is a man who has remained committed to his belief in black liberation and freedom and revolution. Uh, over 49 years. And to them, that's the major crime. That is the crime that he committed, is that he decided to fight for his beliefs, fight for his people, fight for his class, uh, and and not, you know, not surrender. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, that Sundiata uh, was basically uh, uh, criminalized for being a member of the Black Panther Party, uh, not least of which, and, and the Black Liberation Army also. But how much do you think, uh, Nino, his uh, repeated denial of parole and, you know, the adding on of the extra 20 years, how much of that do you think was uh, uh, related to punishing him for his association with Asada Shakur, who, let's not forget, is still on at the top of the FBI's most most wanted criminals list uh, in the United States right now? I mean, I think it's very, very related. I mean, the, in, in the state of New Jersey, I believe under Obama uh, in 2013 or 14, they increased the bounty on Asada Shakur's head from $1 million to $2 million, right, oh. under a so, our first so-called black president, you know, whatever. 
Uh, and, you know, that's a fight that the United States is just embroiled in with Cuba. Uh, and Cuba has said that they are not going to give up the fight of uh, that they are also committed to uh, not just, you know, uh, social justice in their country, but social justice for African-Americans, black people, and Africans. Uh, and, you know, the fact that Sundiata did not relinquish his views, uh, the fact that uh, the struggle for him, you know, still continued to rage on, and it broadened, bringing in Islamic, Christian, uh, as well as the, the Marxists and socialists, what have you, uh, it really showed that, you know, you can lock someone up, but you can't lock up an idea. You can exile Assad Shakur, but you can't exile, you know, uh, free, you know people who are going to fight for freedom. And I think there's a, a really a latent fear here, right? We saw Assad Shakur become a household name in a lot of black families, black communities, uh, after the 2014 uprising in Ferguson, you know, where Assad Shakur t-shirts and Assad taught me uh, became, you know, cheek in fashion and, and people began to read and study Aksasada, become radicalized. We didn't really hear much about her right-hand man, Sundiata. And now that he's released, you know, there is that potential that he will be talking, he will be thinking, he will be in community with people who uh, he needed to be in community with for decades. And the threat of that is people realizing, well, it's not just Sundiata, it's Asada. This, this struggle isn't isn't some ancient struggle. It's not some ancient history. This is within the last mile, a couple of our lifetimes, right? Uh, the last 50, 60 years or so. Um, so I think that's the real threat, but it gives me a lot of hope and optimism because if Sundiata can be freed, maybe we can uh, end drop the bounty on the side of Shakur's head. Maybe we can end the Cuban blockade. Maybe we can free Menacos here, right? It's, it's really a crack in the enemy's armor. Uh, and, and it's a super exciting moment to celebrate. It really is uh, a very exciting moment to celebrate. But I do look at the the news coverage around his release, and a lot is being made, Nino, about the idea of remorse, that, that Sundiata wasn't sufficiently remorseful for the parole board for uh, the actions that led to his arrest and, and that type of thing. I mean, how, how much did the idea of Sundiata being remorseful play into the uh, New Jersey the Supreme Court's decision to uh, release him and overturn this parole board's repeated refusal to grant this man his freedom. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't say particulars of the New Jersey you know, Supreme Court. However, uh, I will say that the effort to free Sundiata by drawing in you know, various faith leaders uh, had mentioned uh, this brother, uh, Reverend Bukata Mujumba. Uh, they, uh, I know they recently just last year during Black August, held a, uh, a vigil. and have held, you know, vigils and religiously inspired activist events and gatherings uh, to, to really draw that, 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 that gap or to, to close that gap, right, uh, and talk about, you know, how forgiveness, you know, is part of their religious traditions and is necessary to heal. Um, also, you know, I think the effort to free Sundiata, uh I believe, I'm not sure when, I think it was last year, a group of black, which is, I mean, we don't bank on this, but, you know, a group of black uh, police uh, officers in, in Jersey, you know, put wrote a letter to, in support of his, you know, release, showing that he was not a threat to his community or not a threat to anyone, really. And, you know, I think that's really the, I couldn't say maybe particulars, but 
you know, I think just really building a mass and broad base that included, you know, Islamic, Christian, Jewish, uh, even, you know, like I said, some of those, uh, uh, I forget the name of the group. It was uh, the black police group that argued to the New Jersey Supreme Court to grant parole, right? So I think it was really just, uh, really, that was the, that was the crux of, of really eating away at that, you know, narrative that, uh, there needs to be, you know, some overly remorseful, uh, uh push from Sundiata. I think what was coded in that is that what they were saying is that he should relinquish his revolutionary views and revolutionary ideology, uh, which he has not. So, yeah, I think that's, that's, Part of the reason why I think he's, he's free today, uh, but I'm not in New Jersey. I wasn't in Jersey on the ground with those folks, uh, but just by way of you know being a part of Jericho and doing that work from from Boston, uh, you know that's kind of how how I see things. Yeah, indeed. And and Asada Shakur said of Sundiata, I want so much for Sundiata to know how much he is loved and respected. I want him to know how much he is appreciated by revolutionaries all over the world. I want Sundiata to know how much he is cherished by African people, not only in the Americas, but all over the diaspora. I want him to know how much we admire his strength, his courage, his kindness and compassion. Sundiata loves freedom and we must struggle for the life and freedom of Sundiata. Now that we have done that, uh, Nino, what is next? I mean, I think one thing that is at the top of the list is that Zundiata has to be taken care of, period. He needs to see his family. He needs some new clothes, uh, you know, excellent healthy food, you know, engagement, all the kisses and hugs that, you know, uh, uh, we can give him. You know, um, I'm not sure of his vaccination status, but we definitely need to make sure that he, you know, stays away from COVID. Uh, I mean, really, we need to just really embrace this brother. I mean, it's like, uh, we talk about the, the, the gap in the movement, right? The 1960s and 70s, they just locked up so many of our, of our leaders. And, you know, the 80s and 90s, there was a, a, a recession, you know, in the political movement. We saw that things moved to the right. And now there's like this ideological gap where we're, we're learning all the same lessons over and having someone who was alive during that period, who struggled at the height of the black liberation movement during that period. is such a gem. It's like having a, 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 a I don't know, it's like a, a library that should be at the service of the movement. Just thinking of comrade Julian Mutakim came out of prison and hit the ground running, still fighting for his people. Uh, still, you know, organizing, still educating, agitating, organizing. I'm not sure what, you know, Sundiata can do at his age now. You know, we don't want to push him, but I think he's done enough. I think it's up to us to take care of him, make sure he is not, you know, uh, feeling the sharp pains of poverty. As we know, many of our warriors go into prison uh, for fighting capitalism, and a lot of them fight a prison back into even worse poverty under capitalism. Uh, so, yeah, I think... That's, 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 that's the primary thing. As a materialist, we need to make sure his material conditions are taken care of. Definitely. Absolutely. And in order to uh, continue to support uh, Brother Sundiata and all of the political prisoners that have yet to be freed, that need to be freed, you can go to thejerichomovement.com. We're out of time for this segment. want to thank Nino Brown so much for joining us to talk about this very important development. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. 
by any means necessary. to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about some important outcomes of the recent elections in Northern Ireland. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Kenneth Surin, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Center for European Studies at Duke University. Uh, Professor Surin, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, You're welcome. And, you know, this election in Northern Ireland is very interesting for several reasons. First, of all that Sinn Féin actually won uh, some very pivotal seats and put them in a position to uh, enter into a power-sharing agreement in the Northern Ireland government. But it doesn't seem like that is uh, going to happen because uh, the largest unionist party in Northern Ireland, which actually lost last week's local election, uh, has refused to return to a power-sharing government because it has some demands over post-Brexit customs arrangements. So I'm wondering if you can give us some uh, insight into the importance of the win for Sinn Féin of the seats in the Northern Ireland government, uh, first of all, and what that means for uh, the nationalist uh, party and the relationship between Northern Ireland and the UK as they work out their disagreements with what kind of government they're going to form? Um, Well, can I uh, make a slight amendment to what you've just said? Power sharing is not something new. It was enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement. The twist uh, created by this election is the fact that Sinn Féin, as you point out, the Nationalist Party, will actually head the power-sharing arrangement. And the Democratic Unionist Party, uh, which traditionally uh, has had the upper hand in all power-sharing arrangements, uh, as these have existed, as I said, since the Good Friday Agreement in 1997, uh, is miffed. And therefore, it is upset because demographically and by virtue of the constitutional arrangement created by the Good Friday Agreement, um, it believed itself to be perpetually embedded in the position of being the superior party in the north of Ireland. This is no longer the case, and uh, therefore uh, it's throwing a hissy fit and refusing to go ahead with a power-sharing agreement in which the Nationalist Party, Sinn Féin, uh, will basically be ruling the roost. So what was the 
uh, factor. What what were the factors that led to uh, Sinn Féin being able to uh, win this election to uh, turn the tables, uh, so to speak, on uh, the Democratic Unionist Party and come out on top in these elections? How has the political landscape in Northern Ireland changed for that to be able to happen? Well, I think there are two factors in play here. First of all, the government of Boris Johnson uh, has taken little interest in the United Kingdom uh, as an assemblage of uh, Wales, Scotland, uh, and the north of Ireland. It has become primarily, by virtue of its fixation on Brexit, a party that is basically English. And so uh, there have been tendencies that have existed um, since the Tories came to power in 2010. Tendencies for Scotland um, to pursue its devolution, and I think ultimately independence, to a lesser extent that is happening in Wales. And it is also happening in the north of Ireland. Now, the situation in the north of Ireland is exacerbated by uh, the UK's departure from the European Union. Now, why is this the case? First of all, to get his Brexit agreement, Boris Johnson, who doesn't have much eye or ear for detail, signed an agreement which basically fudged the question of the relationship between the north of Ireland and its EU member in the south. Uh, and he, here is the main issue. There was a seamless border, a frictionless border between the north and the south, as long as the UK was in the EU. With the departure of the UK from the EU, some kind of border had to be instituted between the two parts of Ireland, because one part obviously still remained in the UK, and the other part belonged uh, to the EU. And the question was, where is this border going to be positioned? The Good Friday Agreement, uh, which basically was the settlement that created a peaceful resolution to the decades-long troubles that had existed between uh, the IRA and other pro-independence uh, or pro-reunification forces in the north of Ireland and the Unionist Party, which, of course, is traditionally bound to uh, continuing its membership of the United Kingdom. So there was a peaceful resolution of that, uh, and a key element in that constitutional arrangement was a frictionless border. But with one part of Ireland belonging to the EU and the other part not, the question was, what are we going to do with this border? The UK in the person of Boris Johnson, in his desperation to get Brexit done, as he put it, that was his repeated mantra, didn't pay attention to the niceties that would be involved in positioning a border. So he fudged the issue, and basically what we have now is a border positioned not on the land between the north and the south of Ireland, but somewhere notionally in the middle 
of the Irish Sea between the rest of the UK and the north of Ireland. And then, of course, this is creating problems uh, because um, as long as you have a border, uh, there have to be customs arrangements, there have to be clearances, etc., documents signed for goods that move from the UK to the north of Ireland because the north of Ireland is still for trading purposes um, in 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 the EU. And of course, this is creating a great deal of dissatisfaction on the part of trading entities uh, in the north of Ireland and in the UK. For example, if uh, a florist uh, in the UK wants to send flowers to the north of Ireland, because the north of Ireland is a part of the EU, at least in trading terms, they have to go through uh, an entire rigmarole, et cetera, et cetera, regarding customs clearances, uh, the ability to um, meet EU regulations uh, on the transfer of flora and fauna from outside the EU into the EU, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole thing is a complete mess. And how has the uh, Democratic Unionist Party responded to not just the loss of their power, but also to uh, this complete mess, as you describe it, of this border issue that remains contested uh, throughout this election? Well, I think what the DUP has done is, in the middle of the ball game, uh, it said, uh, the ball belongs to us, uh, picked up the ball and walked off the field. Um, now, the fear that the DUP has, and uh, really, um, it's not a fear that will be uh, played out immediately, but in the longer term, the reunification of Ireland uh, for some time has seemed inevitable. Um, it was, if you like, uh, a fictional construction uh, simply to placate the Protestant majority in the north of Ireland, who, of course, wanted to remain a part of the UK, uh, and the south of Ireland, which is mainly uh, Roman Catholic. So this fictional construction has been under strain for some time, and it's coming to seem as though uh, over time, it won't happen soon, and it certainly won't happen immediately, over time, the prospect of reunification between the two parts of Ireland uh, seems an inevitability. The DUP is extremely disenchanted with this prospect uh, which is looming over the horizon. Mm, and and this is something, uh, the reunification of Ireland, that uh, Sinn Féin is in support of. Uh, so in the meantime, as these unresolved conti- contentious issues of uh, the DUP not appoint- appointing uh, ministers to uh, form the power-sharing government uh, with Sinn Féin uh, goes on, the border issues remain, how has Sinn Féin responded and how has has the response been in Ireland after the elections and this chaos that has ensued? 
Well, I think there are two parts uh, in any answer to that question. The first is uh, Sinn Féin, as you rightly pointed out, uh, has as its ultimate aim the reunification of Ireland. And what it's done is to say that it has a five-year time frame for the introduction of a referendum on the reunification uh, of Ireland. Now, if the north of Ireland votes for reunification, Sinn Féin then said uh, it will begin the process of implementation. But bear in mind, as I've just said, that the referendum uh, is not going to happen tomorrow or the day after. It is uh, going to happen in a time five-year time frame. At least that is Sinn Féin's commitment. Now, the key question is, as long as the Democratic Unionist Party refuses to play ball, uh, no kind of governmental uh, structure can be put in place for the conducting of this referendum. So basically what the DUP is saying, as long as this referendum is on the horizon, and because power sharing is intrinsic to the political settlements in the north of Ireland, if we do not take part in that power sharing, you guys can't go ahead with planning for the implementation of the referendum. So basically, the DUP is trying to stall any steps that Sinn Féin can take uh, to implementing this referendum. So everything is in a stalemate at present. Definitely, we'll continue to watch the developments in Northern Ireland after this historic political win for Sinn Féin, even as uh, the advances for forming a government have reached a stalemate. But we want to thank Professor Shuren so much for joining us to talk about this issue. We're out of time. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about the curious case of info warrior Malcolm Nance. And I'm happy to be joined <laughs> for this conversation by John Kiriakou, who is the co-host of Political Misfits, which you can hear on this station from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern time right here on Radio Sputnik. John, thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be with you, Jackie. Thanks for having me. So you wrote this piece about Malcolm Nance, and I got to tell you, I laughed the whole way through it because I did not know that this man is such a fraud. Yeah. I did not realize yeah. that. So tell us about uh, Info Warrior Malcolm Nance, what we don't know about him that is really important, probably more important uh, to his story than what we do know. Well, Malcolm Nance is 
pretty well known around Washington for reasons different from the the way he's well known around the country. He's well known around the country as a commentator on intelligence and national security issues for MSNBC. And they always introduce him as career intelligence professional Malcolm Nance. Uh, That's just not true, Jackie. And probably the best way to explain this is is to start at the beginning. Uh, In in 2001, the spring of 2001, uh, I was back at CIA headquarters for a class. I was serving overseas. They brought me back to take a class called Advanced Counterterrorism Operations. And it was as, you know, tough and intense as it sounds. Well, as part of this class, they gave us about a dozen books that were all, you know, the latest academic treatises on terrorism and counterterrorism. Well, listen, I know how I am. I'm not going to read these books, right? And so I decided just to stick them on eBay and ask for 50 bucks. And sure enough, somebody bid 50 bucks. And uh, I uh, sent the guy an email saying, hey, you were the high bidder on these terrorism books for 50 bucks. Here's my address. Oh, he says, you're in Arlington, Virginia. I'm in Arlington, Virginia. I said, okay, well, then why don't we just meet up and I'll just give you the books and you can give me a check. So we met at a bar in the the Roslyn uh, neighborhood of Arlington and the guy introduced himself to me as Malcolm Nance. I said, hi, how are you? Um, Well, I'm good. He says, I'm an intelligence uh, professional. Well, listen, I was an intelligence professional. I never heard of this guy. And I didn't say I was an intelligence professional because I was undercover as a CIA counterterrorism officer. He never asked about me, never asked me a single question. All he wanted to do was to talk about himself. Well, the truth is he was in the Navy for 20 years and he worked in crypto. Uh, cryptological services for the Navy. Uh, it's the same kind of of work that a lot of people do at NSA, but it's uh, it's battle of order. Uh, excuse me, order of battle uh, kind of uh, information. I, I say in the piece that there's a very broad uh, description of what intelligence is. The kind of work that Malcolm was doing is nothing like what he tells people he was doing. And so as part of this, uh, this piece that I wrote, I found uh, an article in a military publication, no less, written by one of his former coworkers. And they said that not only is Malcolm persona non grata in the you know, organizations of former cryptological workers, But even when he was still in the Navy, they gave him a very wide berth because he would always inflate what it was that he was doing. He was the most important, the most crucial, the most critical. He was doing the most cutting edge work. He was working on counterterrorism and counterproliferation and counter narcotics. No, he wasn't. He was doing what everybody else was doing. He was using broken codes to translate documents. That was it. That's what his job was. It was the same as the jobs of a thousand other people. But they recognized when he was still in the Navy that he was really good at making himself look important. The thing is, is that he offended so many people 
and I got this from two different military publications, that, that his coworkers just would no longer have anything to do with him. And so the reason why this is newsworthy and it's timely is that about two months ago, Malcolm Nance made a very big deal about resigning his position at MSNBC and joining this Ukrainian foreign legion kind of thing where there are foreigners going to Ukraine ostensibly to fight Russians. Now, this was funny to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, Malcolm put this badass picture of himself on Twitter and he's, he's holding an M4 and he's staring into the camera. His eyes are squinting like, you know, this is one tough guy. But the, the, the weapon doesn't have any bullets in it. There's no magazine in it. <laughs> <laughs> he did. <John. laughs> it's like they didn't even give him bullets. And then he told a, a, a friend of his who's a journalist for The Guardian that he went over there uh, because uh, not just to kill Russians, but because uh, these reports about Nazis in the Ukrainian military are just not true. Or if they are true, they're exaggerated and that we have more Nazis in our military than the Ukrainians have in their military. And that as a black man, uh, he's going over there to show that race means nothing in uh, Ukraine. We know that that's not true, too, because we know that African, not African-Americans, but but black Africans, mostly who were in Ukraine studying uh, were were kept in a separate line while the whites were processed to go into Poland and the Africans were not allowed. They had to wait three and four days. So anyway, his his reasons, his excuses are outrageous. My own conclusion is that, you know, when when you lie or inflate your own past, in order to keep that lie going, in order to keep it current, you have to constantly one-up yourself. You can't just rest on your laurels of what you say you used to do. You have to show that you're still relevant. And he just ran out of ways to be relevant. And so he, uh, he left and, uh, and is pretending to fight in Ukraine now. You know, I told you I laughed throughout this whole, <laughs> when I was reading this whole thing. Because the whole story, when he posted that picture on Twitter, I thought, first of all, first of all, I kind of thought, He's got a lot of equipment on. That just looks really unreasonable for anybody to have that much equipment on. But the fact that there are no, there's no magazine in the weapon, that was just hilarious. <laughs> and, and another far, thing, if I could interrupt you for one second. Yes. This, this is something that I pointed out in the piece that, that he has not raised. And that is that, that Malcolm and all the other foreigners in this so-called Ukrainian legion for the defense of the constitution or whatever silly name they've given it, they're all based on the Polish border. Like they are hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the fighting. They're not doing any fighting. Really? This is propaganda. Propaganda so that the Ukrainian government can say, look at all these foreigners who love us so much and who, who feel so strongly about our cause. They've come all the way over here to fight for freedom. No, they haven't. 
<laughs> no, they haven't. And then he made a big deal in the uh, in the uh, Guardian article that the Ukrainian military is is paying their salaries. Well, guess what? What did nobody bother to read the uh, Ukraine aid bill that passed the House day before yesterday? We're paying the Ukrainian military's salaries, and then they're in turn paying Malcolm Nance his salary. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I just, it, it just, it you, you cannot make this stuff up, which, which leads me to question, uh, as if I needed any more reason to question MSNBC's uh, <laughs> uh, veracity. But I, I feel like if this is something that you found out about this guy from a cursory, just basic uh, uh, investigation into who knew him, what he did, and what his record was when he was uh, in the Navy. How how is how has MSNBC not figured out that this man is not only uh, a charlatan, but he actually, according to your article, left the Navy Security Group in disgrace? Yeah, he and, did. Yeah, I mean, Jackie, you know, that's. What, what, that's the $64,000 question right there. That, that's a very important question that every major news network should be asking. You know, in, in a city like Washington, you're going to get a lot of pretenders. And I'm very sensitive to this kind of thing because I've run into so many of them. When I was working in the private sector, I worked for one of the big four consulting firms, accounting firms, and we had a lot of people... Um, apply to the company claiming to have CIA experience. So I would always be asked to take them to dinner so it's totally non-threatening and to probe them about their careers at the CIA. And 75% of them were just making it up. They were never in the CIA. And so I'd say, what what uh, uh, did you do at the CIA? I'd say, what uh, directorate were you in? They would make up a directorate. Sometimes they would get it right. And then I'd say, oh, what division were you in? Who did you work for? What was your OS? You know? And they would look at you with this blank stare, like they didn't know what you were talking about. I happened to be in the green room at Fox News. This is about five years ago. And um, I was talking to this guy who said he was in counterterrorism at the CIA. I said, really? I said, I was in counterterrorism at the CIA for, for many years. Um, who'd you work for? Oh, I, I can't really talk about it. It's, uh, it's classified. I said, no, it's not. It's not classified. I said, what, uh, what group were you in? Well, I was doing black ops. Well, first of all, nobody at the CIA would ever use the term black ops. That's right out of the movies. Like nobody would ever call the CIA the company ever under any circumstances. So I went on the Tucker Carlson show and we went to a commercial break and I said, you know, the CIA guy you have waiting out there, I think he's faking it. And he said, seriously? I said, yeah, he doesn't use the proper lingo. Well, six months later. It turns out the guy's exposed. He's faking it. He even lied to a bank saying that he was a career CIA officer so he could get a mortgage. And now he's doing five years for bank fraud. But this is a common thing in Washington. People oftentimes inflate their own pasts thinking, look, there are so many former CIA people in Washington. They've got to live somewhere, right? They live here. They've got to have some jobs. Well, they work here. And, and nine times out of 10, nobody's going to question them.
Yeah, and nobody questioned uh, Malcolm Nance when he was saying what what appears to be legally actionable things about Glenn Greenwald, about uh, Edward Snowden. I mean, what were some of the things that he said that really people kind of throw these phrases around all the time now? Really, according to you, they have specific meanings that are really, really kind of dangerous. Oh, my gosh. Yes. When when somebody accuses someone of being an agent or a paid agent, that has a very specific legal meaning. That means that you are on the payroll of a foreign intelligence service, usually a hostile foreign intelligence service. That is a crime that in some cases is punishable by death. So you can't go on MSNBC and say that the Green Party's uh, presidential nominee, Jill Stein, is a paid agent of the Russian government. That's actionable. And I'll tell you what, she is a lot nicer person than I am because I would have had him in federal court so fast he wouldn't even have realized what the heck had hit him. He um, he said the same thing about Glenn Greenwald, that Glenn Greenwald was an agent of the Russians. He said that Jill Stein had a show on RT and that she was being paid uh, to produce Russian propaganda. She never had any show on RT ever or on Sputnik. He said that Ed Snowden defected to Russia. Anybody who's ever read a newspaper knows that Ed Snowden didn't defect to Russia. Ed Snowden was in the transit lounge at Moscow Airport on his way to Ecuador when John Kerry revoked his passport and stranded him there. So Malcolm Nance is one of those people who is not careful, not discerning with his language. And it's going to get him in some big trouble. Mm, but he is the the poster child, uh, so to speak, for the uh, American defense of uh, the war in Ukraine. And but but I, I I think that the Democratic Party, John, really doesn't need any help for doing that because yep. the Biden administration just approved uh, seven billion dollars more than Biden asked for in April. That's in right. Aid for Ukraine. This is this is wild to me. Uh, the forty billion dollar Ukraine aid package that was passed Tuesday, passed by a margin of three hundred sixty eight to fifty seven. Yep. I I crazy. I do not know. Well, yes, I do know, but I I, I don't think there is any defense for the Democratic Party anymore for continually voting for not just war but here a part of the a part of the uh, aid includes 900 million dollars for housing education and other help for Ukrainian refugees in the US we can't get those things john no we can't get those things we can't get money for schools or roads or bridges or airports you remember a year ago a bridge literally fell into the river below it in pittsburgh You know, our our infrastructure is terrible. Our hospitals are falling behind the times. We have second and third world uh, airports. But my God, we can find billions and billions of dollars in aid for Ukraine. It's inexcusable. And then, John, the Democrats capitulated once again to the Republicans who didn't want to include COVID relief. That's right. In the bill. I, I just don't think there is a defense for the Democrats in which they could not push back and demand that something they wanted 
for the people would be included. You know, okay, fine. If if you want this additional money for Ukraine, all right, fine. But we're going to include these COVID relief funds. Couldn't even get that, John. No, we couldn't even get that in in a Congress where the Democrats control both houses. They control the debate. They control the committees. And still they couldn't get it done. And, and even in the House, right? Because the House would have been easy. There's no filibuster in the House. There's only a filibuster in the Senate. And so what you do is you pass the perfect bill in the House. You allow the Senate to add its, its uh, amendments and have their fights. And then you hash it out in conference committee. And if Ukraine aid is as important to, you know, the Republicans in the Senate as they claim it is, then they're going to give to the Democrats a little sop on on COVID COVID relief. As Tupac Shakur said, money for war, but none for the poor. That's still true. So true. And this strange, curious case of Malcolm Nance, I'm sure, is not over. We have probably not heard the last of him as this horrible Ukraine saga continues. We want to thank you so much, John Kiriakou, for coming on and talking to us about this wild story. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm Jackie Lukeman sitting in for Sean Blackman, so please stay tuned. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, I am back, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to be back on this Thursday, May 12th. And at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 with anything that's on your mind, your thoughts, concerns, whatever you want to talk about and ask us. But there are other ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades to reach out and touch us. Hear it by any means necessary in Washington, D.C. You can listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio, then click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also check us out on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. You can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. And we are streaming for your listening pleasure this week, but normally for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat, however, is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And I am very happy to be joined today by my national organizer, Ajamu Baraka, national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace. Ajamu, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. It's, it's always an honor to be with you. 
It is always an honor to be with you. And it seems like we always have you on at the most fortuitous times in, in political uh, history because the United States government is gearing up to host this uh, uh, Summit of the Americas uh, in Los Angeles, uh, June 6th to the 10th. And it's promising to be uh, a little bit of a disaster. And I have to admit that I'm 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 here for this disaster. I want this disaster to happen because this summit uh, of the Americas is not at all because of who the Biden administration has chosen to uh, arbitrarily exclude. So, so I'm wondering, I'm wondering, Ajamu, if you can give us an overview of what the summit of Americas is. Uh, and and what the controversy is around this particular summit of Americas? Well, this is a, a gathering of the states of um, the Caribbean and Latin America that takes place every three years or so, um, and it's been circulating from um, uh, place to place here in the region. This year, the host is supposed to be the United States of America, and as you said. The uh, meeting is taking place in Los Angeles. But, you know, the conditions in the region have changed um, quite dramatically. Um, it's been over the last uh, decade or so, um, or more, really, that the U.S. has really stepped up its subversive activities in, in the region. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. has always been a subversive force in the region, but it, 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 it appears that um, really beginning with um, the administration of, of uh, George Bush, but then intensified under Barack Hussein Obama, uh, there was a significant uptick in the, the interference, uh, in the uh, undermining of national sovereignty, um, on the part of the U.S. throughout the entire region. And part of it was motivated because of the political changes that have taken place in the region that the uh, U.S. was uh, concerned that it could no longer uh, control. And what were those those changes? Well, the, the imposition of, of global neoliberal capitalism uh, that really started in the late 1970s, intensified under the uh, Reagan-Thatcher years in the 80s um, uh, and was consolidated under uh, Bill Clinton in the 90s, uh, had a devastating impact on the on the peoples and nations uh, in, the, in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, so that by the late 90s and going into the early 2000s, uh, you had a, a, a political revolt. You had a a, and uh, uh, redevelopment uh, of the left forces in the region uh, that um, entered into uh, electoral uh, politics as part of their movement building uh, strategies and ended up uh, actually uh, assuming nominal control of the state. We say nominal control, meaning that basically they became the government in a number of countries in the region. Uh, but they didn't completely control the state because these countries are basically basically capitalist states, still uh, uh, controlled by uh, a local Commodore uh, uh, capitalist class uh, working in conjunction with uh, the U.S. capital. But the very fact that some of these movements were, were coming to power in places like Brazil and in Venezuela and uh, in Ecuador, 
uh, in Nicaragua uh, in, in, in 2006. Uh, and of course, the continuation of, of the struggles and, and, and process in Cuba, it really um, uh, signaled that things had changed in the region uh, and the U.S. needed to uh, respond appropriately. Now, their response wasn't as, as devastating as it could have been, because uh, remember in the 2000s, they were, they were, um, uh, their attention was somewhat diverted, if you will, because that's when they were, had, had, had placed themselves in the uh, in a position of attempting to try to uh, execute two simultaneous wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Uh, and so they were uh, not completely focused. But uh, toward the latter part of the Obama administration, uh, they began to refocus on Latin America. And the result was that uh, they began to, to uh, support coups. In fact, we remember that uh, one of the first uh, events of the newly uh, formed Obama administration uh, with the Secretary of State being Hillary Clinton uh, was to, in fact, uh, execute a coup in Honduras. So, long story, a little bit shorter. That basically, these are the conditions that, that they created a political upsurge. Uh, the U.S. responded with subversion. Um, and so the situation today uh, with the reemergence, if you will, of these uh, movements that were somewhat um, uh, subverted, undermined by U.S. Uh, criminal activity in, in the in the region, uh, they have reemerged and have come back even stronger in places like Nicaragua. Uh, and so, with the U.S. hosting the Summit of the Americas this year, they decided as part of their continuation of their attempts to try to uh, maintain control in the region. Uh, they said that they were not going to allow uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, and Venezuela to participate. Um, and so uh, that's where we are today. The Black Alliance of Peace, just this morning, uh, issued a, a statement uh, suggesting that the states of uh, the Caribbean and Latin America should, in fact, boycott uh, this summit of the Americas. Yeah, and what you mentioned about, <clears throat> excuse me, the continued... Uh, involvement of U.S. so-called democracy and, and human rights actions and groups in the region um, brings to mind organizations like the OAS, which Nicaragua just basically kicked out of the country, the core group and Southcom uh, and all of the uh, so-called democracy promoting activities that are really regime change and uh, uh, um, actions to, to entrench uh, Western U.S., particularly capitalist hegemony uh, in these countries, <clears throat> excuse me, have not been, uh, they've not gone ignored by these countries that are involved uh, in the summit of the Americas. And, and what have the countries that have decided or have made statements that maybe they may boycott the summit of the Americas? Have they raised these issues uh, of these kinds of actions that the U.S. and its allies have committed in particularly in the countries that the U.S. government has decided to try to ostracize? Um, have, have these countries' leaders brought these elements to the fore, uh, basically 
calling the U.S. on the carpet for, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, cry foul over Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua when it's the U.S.'s own uh, organizations like the OAS, the core group in Southcom, that destroys democracies in these countries. Well, you know, that, that's, that's a, a very interesting and, and incorrect uh, commentary that, you know, we have these these conversations taking place on multiple levels. You have the uh, conversations on the state level, um, and you have, but you have conversations even more importantly taking place among the masses of people in Latin America and the Caribbean. Among the people um, in Latin America and the Caribbean, there's a, a very clear understanding that uh, they're not going to be able to fully realize uh, liberation, uh, real um, uh, sustainable development, uh, respect for their their rights and dignity, as long as you have this hegemon from the North, U.S., um, involved in the region, subverting democracy and imposing economic uh, policies that uh, lead to the continuation of the immiseration of the masses of the people. So they are already on board in terms of, of not giving much uh, uh, credibility to this gathering of states in Los Angeles. On the other hand, you have states you have states that are uh, talking among themselves. They recognize, in particular the more progressive ones, the subversive uh, and, and criminal nature of the U.S. Uh, activity in the region. Uh, but the ones who are taking the lead in suggesting to the U.S. that it has no right to exclude anyone from the Americas have been uh, states like uh, Mexico uh, and states in the Caribbean who have been taking the very uh, uh, almost courageous positions, if you will, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, U.S. Uh, hegemony in the region. So there, there's been conversation around the possibility of, of a boycott uh, of of the uh, of the summit, um, but nothing from civil society, if you will, or the of the people, until uh, BAP issued this statement this morning, and we're trying to we are encouraging uh, others to voice their position on this uh, gathering, uh, and we take the position, Jacqueline, that even if the U.S. was to relent and invite uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. We are making the argument that that's still not enough, that the U.S. has disqualified itself as a regional partner and that it should not be allowed to host this gathering of states here in our region. So we're taking a, a, a position that says that uh, this is unnecessary. Uh, this state uh, is not part of our Americas um, and that uh, uh, all of the states still considering participating should probably uh, reconsider. And then this this calls into question uh, the attendees who were considering going. Now, there is a, a separate conference called uh, the People's Summit, which will be held uh, almost simultaneously in June in Los Angeles, um, which is literally exactly what it says it is. I mean, in lieu of these countries and their leaders uh, boycotting 
uh, well, not in lieu, but it, as these countries boycott the summit of the Americas, which I hope they do, and I, I really do hope, Ajamu, that it it is the complete disaster of an embarrassment for the Biden administration that they really are making it out to be. Because not only has the Biden administration uh, excluded those three countries that has raised the ire of all the other countries in the Americas. They've also, as of a few days ago, had not really sent out invitations. They really have not done a whole lot in, in planning and, and organizing. So, I mean, it, it, I question why the Biden, Biden administration is even bothering when it, it, it clearly seems like they're not that interested in having diplomatic relationships with leaders of the uh, governments of the Americas, of the countries in the Americas. But then what, what do you say about the uh, alternative summit, the People's Summit, that will be held uh, in Los Angeles also? Yeah, but let, before I get to the people, summit, let me uh, comment though on on what you just laid out in terms of of of, of the kinds of, of of planning or lack of planning uh, that we see coming from the administration in preparation. Absolutely. It it you know it, the Latin America is seen as a very important region uh, for for the uh, for the Biden administration for the U.S. Uh, ruling class. It's part of their efforts to. Uh, try to to uh, uh, preempt or to 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 mitigate uh, the influences coming from, uh, in particular, the Chinese. Uh, and so, as part of the U.S. national security strategy, um, they articulated uh, a plan to uh, try to pull the 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 region closer to them again. Uh, you know, they they know enough to not use certain inflammatory language like, you know, uh, what was happening under the Trump administration that referred back to and held up the Monroe Doctrine, which was this this, this uh, completely white supremacist, uh, arrogant assertion that uh, Latin America belonged basically to the U.S. Uh, so the Biden administration said, no, but, you know, the, the, the Latin America is not our uh, backyard is our front yard. They're trying to mitigate the impact of that of that uh, backward and racist language. Uh, so they they understand that they have to do something. Now the problem for them is that because of their white supremacy, their arrogance, um, they're not taking this um, gathering that seriously, as reflected in the lack of of of, of planning uh, and the attempts to try to. Uh, imposed their positions on the entire uh, region by excluding, arbitrarily excluding, uh, these three countries. Uh, so, no, it, it's the the you know the the states of Latin America are a, are in play in terms of the international uh, competition, uh, but the 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 Biden administration they're just not very uh, good players, if you will. Now, on the the People Summit. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's like three different summits being organized uh, as alternatives to the uh, the state summit. Uh, and those gatherings are, in fact, very important. Anything that emanates from the bottom up, that emanates from the people, uh, is, is vitally important uh, and must be supported. So even if those states uh, boycott the uh, state summit, uh, we are still bringing people together uh, to talk about the plight of our region, you know, and what we're trying to push in the Black Alliance of Peace 
is what we are refer what we refer to as an American wide consciousness to remind people that that uh, you are in the United States of America, uh, but the United States of America is not America. That the Americas, uh, the colonial name, includes all of the uh, Central and South America and and the Caribbean, uh, and, and and that you know what we want to do is for people to understand that the plight Americas also also reflects on uh, our needs. And we're part of this upsurge of a popular resistance to U.S. Uh, hegemony. So, you know, th- these gatherings beginning uh, June 4th in Los Angeles uh, will be very important. It culminate in another gathering of a summit of workers in Tijuana, Mexico, uh, beginning on June 10th. Uh, we plan to be there. We're going to mobilize our, our membership primarily in the West to participate um, and uh, hopefully coming out of these more clear uh, set of actions and plans on how we can collectively uh, beat back the, uh, uh, the, the activities, the anti-people and anti-democratic activities emanating from the United States of America. Absolutely. And we're going to move to our first break of the hour and pick this up on the other side of that break. But we will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I, Jackie Lukeman, continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka. And we have a caller on the line, Tamara. Tamara, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Jackie Lukeman. Hi, Ajamu. Um, I wanted to ask you, or I wanted to take the, I guess, the conversation to Brazil and the upcoming uh, elections of Lula uh, da Silva. And he had a very interesting proposal about um, creating a Latin American currency called the SUS. And I wanted to know what Ajamu and Jackie as well, what if they think that this could be signaling some other geopolitical shifts. I think since the Ukraine war, there's been a lot of attention paid, yeah, a lot of attention paid to what the U.S. is doing and their allies, but I don't think that's the only game in town. So I want to know what were some of your thoughts about, you know, another country trying once again to get off the U.S. seat, just as um, in um, in um, Venezuela, right? A Chavez also made this attempt as well, but I think El Salvador or Ecuador has pulled out of that USD exchange block, which which made the currency, I guess, decline in value and stuff like that. So here we see another attempt, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. Thank you. Thank you for your call, Tamara. Great, uh, great question. Ajamu, what are your thoughts on our caller's question? 
Yeah, yeah, very good, very, very good question. Um, it, 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 it is a very complicated situation because, um, of course, Lula has not been able to assume office yet. Uh, but floating the idea of the possibility of uh, uh, a Latin America a currency is, a, is a, an important one. Uh, it reflects the desire on the part of Lula and, 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 and indeed many other states in the region uh, to begin to exercise some degree of, of economic autonomy from the imposition of, 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 of the dollar, the dominance of the dollar. Um, but it's a very, it's a challenging, you know, uh, situation because, you know, what has to take place even before you uh, attempt to experiment with an alternative uh, currency is to uh, uh, consolidate the independent uh, regional-wide structures that have been put in place, uh, that uh, have been put in place to try to encourage uh, closer economic relationships among states in the region um, through trade, investment, um, the, the uh, uh, sharing of, of, of knowledge, um, in other words, the, the process of regional integration is only through more effective regional integration that uh, along progressive lines uh, that the people and nations of Latin America will be able to survive and be able to uh, uh, put in place and to defend uh, a uh, alternative currency. But, you know, we it's important that people understand that, you know, the U.S. has uh, aggressively responded to, to any attempts to try to uh, 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 create alternative currencies. In fact, you know, some people have pointed out that uh, the, the, the quickest way to be, uh, to be a, the target of U.S. subversion and regime change is when you begin to uh, talk about alternative currencies uh, like uh, Saddam Hussein, <laughs> uh, Muammar Gaddafi, um, you know, it is the dollar hegemony that has uh, allowed the U.S. to to run the kinds of deficits that it runs, uh, to uh, be able to uh, control international trade to a certain extent, uh, because even with the movement toward uh, alternative payment schemes, uh, more I mean, still 80 percent of most international trade still takes place. Uh, with the dollar. So you have the dollar and then the, the euros, you still have this, this economic stranglehold uh, that uh, Western European countries have on international trade. So it's a, it's a, a laudable uh, goal to have, um, but we, we'll see what will in fact unfold. We hope that Lula and, and Brazil will become more effective participants in the Union of South African Nations, which was uh, developed as a uh, beginning of a trading block and the, the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our Americas uh, trade treaty uh, process uh, and the strengthening of the community of Latin America and Caribbean states. These are the structures, these are the state level, that need to be strengthened uh, in order for uh, the region to be able to be more effective in uh, withstanding the continued uh, pressure coming from the United States of America. 
And I think this is a good point, uh, a good moment to ask uh, this question about the community of Latin American and Caribbean states. Uh, I think Tamara's question set this up really well because uh, CELAC is calling for a Latin American zone of peace. And I, I think that that call for a uh, Latin American zone of peace and the right of countries within CELAC to pursue their own economic, uh, you know, self-determination with creating their own currencies and making their own trade deals all kind of fits together in what you're talking about, Ajama, which is strengthening the uh, ties between governments uh, in Latin American and Caribbean states. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, CELAC uh, made a call and uh, made a declaration in 2014 that uh, our region should be a region committed to peace. In fact, it should be a zone of peace. And what that means is that uh, the states and the peoples of this region recognize that uh, without peace, we're not going to be able to develop. We're not going to be able to build the kind of societies we want to build. Uh, and we also recognize that with our commitment to peace, that means we have to confront directly the structures um, and institutions uh, and states that undermine uh, our ability to realize uh, peace in our nations and in this region. So it means that we have to uh, confront those structures, institutions, and those states that are committed to uh, ensuring that there will always be chaos, uh, violence, uh, subversion, uh, in order for uh, these these external forces to be able to uh, exercise control in our region. So, here the the demand for uh, a zone of peace is a, a positive demand, if you will. It is a a demand that says we have to go into action in order to make this region a zone of peace. We have to identify structures like uh, the the U.S. Southcom um, in the region that is the military arm of the United States government uh, and demand that it is, in fact, withdrawn from this region. We have to look at states like Israel that provides uh, weapons and training to uh, armies and police forces across uh, the region, including uh, the activity of the U.S. involved in the same kinds of activities. Uh, you know, we have to uh, suggest that states uh, need to draw down their militaries that are put in place, not to uh, defend their nation against external threats, but to have the military used as an instrument of social control, of, of, of domination of their own people. So this call for a zone of peace uh, is not a passive call. It is a an active call. It is a, a call for positive action, if you will, uh, to uh, uh, transform those relationships uh, and to to build the conditions that we need to have in order for our people to uh, to realize peace. So this this call is a very important element of the work that we are trying to develop in the Black Alliance for Peace, because the call came from states in 2014. But there was not really a very effective corresponding development from the bottom up, from the people. Many people in the region uh, are not even aware of the declaration of 2014. What we want to do is to begin to make people aware of this declaration, to give it the teeth and the and the support 
are from the people themselves uh, so that they can uh, demand that uh, their states uh, stop uh, cooperating with uh, military structures like SOFCOM, uh, reject the assistance from uh, from Israel, uh, not allow the uh, uh, OAS uh, to to use its collective strength to undermine democracy uh, in our region. So, you know, this is what we want to call and call for. Uh, and when people understand that we are committed as a people and as nations to a zone of peace, then uh, it would be uh, much difficult for the U.S. to suggest that any uh, outside forces, be it uh, the Russians or China China, China or whatever, uh, that uh, they try to pretend that uh, these forces, these nations are going to be able to come into our, our region and establish military bases in Cuba or whatever. You know, most people would know that that is just propaganda, uh, that this this uh, region is committed to uh, peace uh, and would not allow any of its territory to be used uh, as anyone's military base. That, that is absolutely true. And, and you know, the Black Alliance for Peace does a lot of work around uh, raising the issues of uh, U.S. militarism and the excessive uh, expression of U.S. militarism around the world, and you know, Southcom. I think I think people don't recognize Ajamu still, and I think this this of course speaks to the level of indoctrination and miseducation of the American public. But I don't think people realize that the world is quite literally divided up into U.S. military commands where there are uh, bases, uh, there are 800 plus U.S. military bases around the world, but where the United States military, the Department of Defense, the United States government has decided that it should have a military presence that controls, quote unquote, each region of the world to protect the influence or to protect the uh, interests of the United States government in that region. So when we're talking about uh, countries in the Americas and in the Caribbean, we are talking about Southcom and the influence, the military influence that the U.S. government has against all of those countries that we've seen throughout history when we talk about, uh, you know, coups and, and uh, you know, regime change and, and you know, the support of right-wing uh, uh, organizations operating to crush leftist people-centered governments. But how, how do you see the understanding of U.S. militarism from the people in the Americas? Because I do feel that there is always this very vast uh, difference in education and understanding of what the problem is, who the problem is. And I, 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 I get the feeling that the people in the Americas are clear that Southcom in the U.S. is the problem, but we in the U.S. still have a lot to learn. We've got a steep learning curve on on that and the issue of U.S. militarism in general, Ajama. Well, you know, Jackie, that's, that's, that's actually the, the, the political contradiction we have to deal with. The fact that, uh, as, you, as you just said, uh, the, the painful history of, 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 of Latin America and the Caribbean is one in which um, there's no lack of clarity uh, on who has been responsible for uh, much of the violence here in this region. Uh, 
the 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 awareness of Yankee imperialism is something that is 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 is, is sunk deep into the cultures of most of the uh, nations here in the in the region, um, and that's been the foundation for uh, much of the progressive uh, motion we've seen uh, over the last few decades. That's why neoliberal policies couldn't really completely take hold in the region because you have this this tradition of political opposition, of political struggle, of armed struggle against the hegemon from from the north. The problem we have is that it is uh, progressive, so-called progressive and left forces in the United States that have not done their, uh, not carried out their role and responsibility, being at the center of empire. They're the ones that when uh, states find themselves in the crosshairs of U.S. subversion in places like Bolivia or uh, Nicaragua or or Venezuela or, or Cuba, or whatever, instead of being in solidarity with these peoples in their state, uh, no matter what you might think about about uh, what may be happening internally in terms of how they are pursuing their attempts at national self-determination, instead of you standing in opposition to U.S. intervention, these phony latte-love elements in North America, uh, they want to uh, pontificate about what is happening with the revolutionary process in those countries, uh, condemn these countries when they don't uh, correspond to their their imagination of, of how you build socialism. Uh, and they end up uh, not only giving ideological cover U.S. imperialist intervention, but they help to disarm uh, opposition. They confuse uh, opposition to U.S. imperialism. They, in fact, uh, they operate like controlled operate, uh, controlled uh, opposition, and and that is the problem we have. That these these soft, uh, petty bourgeois uh, leftists uh, in the U.S.—not all of them, uh, but a, a large portion of them—and uh, particularly these last couple of decades. Uh, have 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 allowed themselves to be to be uh, corrupted by their positionality in empire, uh, the, the relative comfort they've been able to uh, to experience, uh, and have been used as a tool uh, against uh, the struggling peoples of the Americas. So that's the the issue we have. That you know the the left in 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 the north uh, have become uh, objectively a reactionary force. We say that uh, not, not only here in Latin America, but we say that with the, the unfolding and continued crisis um, generated by this uh, manufactured war in, in Ukraine and the kind of confusion that it has so far generated among this uh, latte social imperialist left uh, in, in, in the U.S., and in Western Europe. So that's the issue we have, Jackie. That basically the people are struggling, they're resisting, they're attempting to build something new, but it's the hegemon in the North uh, and their corrupt uh, uh, left uh, collaborating with the liberals that become the real detriment to real social progress. Indeed. And we're going to move to another quick break. We will be right back. We see you, caller. We'll pick you up on the other side of the break. We shall return on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka, and we have a caller on the line, Keith. Keith, what's going on? Tell us what's on your mind. Okay, great show and great guest, as usual, Jackie. And um, I just wanted to say, um, in explaining how regime change takes place with the U.S. government, we have to consider that it's similar to, again, analogy, analogy would be a Trojan horse. The Trojan horse is, you know, the Greek, you know, uh, Persians and all this stuff, and they brought the horse, and when they went to sleep, guess who came out of the horse? And that's similar to how the democracy promotion works. The billion-dollar NED, National Endowment for Democracy, gets this huge amount of money, and they shovel it out to people who are um, interested in regime change within the government, they can give it to Freedom House or any of a number of NGOs to a grant or cooperative agreement. They can give it to USAID to uh, hand out to its um, lackeys. And we see the Orange Revolution. We see the um, different uh, color revolutions, the, the, the Rose Revolution. All of these things in Victoria Newland, that money comes out of that pot. So you go there as ostensibly to promote democracy, but what you're doing, you're basically perverting the system by taking the money and, you know, doing what we call color revolution, the orange, we, we, we've seen them all. And then those uh, people, many of them with good intentions within the country, think this is something good, but it's for the ends and the um, sinister things that we want to do. And somebody like the guy who wrote Inside the CIA or Confessions of an Economic Hitman needs to write a book, Confessions of a Democracy Promoter. And we'll see the links between George Soros. This whole thing and all this money goes in to pervert, uh, you know, propagandize these people. And they think they're working for a good end. And the same thing's happening happened in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, Victoria Newland went with that big suitcase full of money, bought off all these neo-Nazis and Azov Battalion and the fascists. And Randy, other Randy, it's sitting um, uh, president at that time, Viktor Yanukovych, out, and then they put in the puppet. And then these color revolutions, they, they, they hand out food to you, they give you everything you need to, to foment this thing. And we've seen it from Egypt all the way to uh, every other country that they've done it in. I thought I just might want to comment on that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Keith. I always say that we have some of the smartest callers in the business. Appreciate you. Ajahn Mubaraka, what are your thoughts on our caller, callers' comments? Well, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, look, the first tip-off should be that, that whenever you hear that the U.S. is attempting to promote democracy in a nation, uh, you, should, you should be automatically suspicious because the U.S. is not a democracy itself. Uh, and so we should know that whatever they're trying to promote in that country uh, has to be the opposite of democracy. Uh, and so, you know, that's the first tip. The second thing is that uh, we should not allow uh, the people's resources to be used as as, as instruments against uh, the people in other nations who are attempting to try to build something uh, for themselves uh, that they believe are, is important. 
um, and that uh, we should not allow for this state uh, to have the freedom to be able to undermine their processes and to get away with it. So, yes, you know, these, the, the National Endowment for, the, for Democracy and all of these various uh, uh, agencies engage in so-called democracy, democracy promotion, uh, they have one objective. And that objective is to, is to maintain U.S. global hegemony. And part of doing that uh, is to engage in the ideological struggle. And that's what these efforts are all about. It's about trying to win uh, people over to a uh, alien perspective that is a perspective uh, opposite to their, their own objective interests, uh, a perspective that represents the, the worldview of the U.S. and the West as opposed to the worldviews and uh, needs and interests of the people in the global south. Yeah, and there are, you know, continuing efforts of those people in the global south and um, in the Americas to pursue true democracy, even in the face of, you know, U.S. imperialism and their cozying up with right wing governments. And this is definitely true in Colombia, where there is a hotly contested uh, election cycle going on right now where where, where it's being characterized by uh, violence and threats of violence against the uh, progressive candidates. So I'm wondering if you can fill us in on the elections in Colombia, uh, what has been going on and how what the outlook uh, seems to be for a potential change in Colombia from the right-wing Ivan Duque, U.S.-supported government to a more progressive coalition government with a true leftist uh, as a part of it? Well, um, I think that's a very important uh, question and important conversation. As we talk about what's happening here in Latin America, um, and we talked about the fact that you have this motion, this progressive uh, uh, and left motion, if you will, um, developing uh, here in the region uh, and the response from the U.S. to that motion. Uh, and part of the U.S. response in the region has been to utilize uh, various structures like the uh, OAS, uh, but also various uh, nations like Colombia. Uh, Colombia has been used as some people characterize Colombia as the, the, the Israel of, of Latin America. It's no accident, people argue, that with the assassination of Juvenal Moise in Haiti, uh, that you have um, Colombian nationals involved in that. Uh, they have been used as muscle uh, throughout the region and beyond the region. Many of these mercenary forces in various parts of the, of the world, you'll find that uh, uh, Colombians are seen as very valuable um, um, uh, contributors because they get uh, excellent training from the U.S., um, so they're well-trained. Uh, they have combat experience because they've been, they were involved in a long-going conflict uh, in, uh, in, the re- in, the, in the country for five decades. Um, so this is the role they've been playing in the region for a long time. But with the possibility of a shift to the left represented by the uh, the electoral uh, candidacy of Gustavo Petro uh, and Francis Marquez, who, if your listeners aren't aware, and I'm sure they are, but we say it again, 
that Francie Marquez is a uh, uh, African Colombian uh, from the uh, uh, countryside, a rural worker who grew up working in the mines, um, uh, who is a member of uh, one of the most progressive black organizations in the country, uh, who is running now with Gustavo Petro uh, as a consequence of this ticket um, and the kind of coalition they put in place. Uh, we're looking at the, the, the possibility of the first time in Colombian history of a progressive slash left uh, administration uh, coming to power in Colombia. Well, of course, you know, if, if most people know a little bit about Colombian history, and they should not be surprised that uh, in response to this possibility, uh, we see that the right wing has really mobilized itself. They have been uh, threatening the uh, the campaign. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Francia and, and Petro had to suspend their uh, campaigns because of the uh, security situation. Uh, there are the security issues throughout the country related to the uh, to the campaign, uh, and ongoing security issues related to the ongoing struggles here, uh, where uh, social activists, organizers, uh, are murdered uh, uh, constantly. Uh, so, you know, we have something that's pretty historic, um, uh, and something that uh, a situation that the U.S. Uh, does not want to see change uh, for itself. Um, and so uh, two months ago, we had the, the Biden administration uh, making these very strange comments about sort of reasserting the special relationship between uh, Colombia and the U.S., uh, reminding people of that relationship and, 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 and sort of implying, we thought, that uh, no matter what happens with the election, uh, that if the right wing decides that uh, it needs to do what it needs to do to ensure that uh, real change doesn't happen, that the U.S. will be there to support them. So it's a very dangerous situation that the campaign is facing, um, and uh, we are hopeful that um, with uh, uh, international mobilization, more attention, uh, that uh, if they do win, if Francia and uh, Petro win, uh, that there would be sufficient uh, international support uh, to uh, starve off, uh, maybe not completely, but at least delay the kind of subversive activities we know uh, would take place trying, in trying to undermine their ability to govern here in Colombia. But Colombia is very important, as people might know. There, you have eight military bases here uh, in the country, um, uh, you know, Biden has a very uh, a, a special relationship because he is one of the, he proudly uh, claims one of the fathers of Plan Colombia, uh, the plan that resulted in billions of dollars being transferred from the U.S. to Colombia uh, to support the war against the uh, uh, so-called guerrillas here in the country. Uh, and we have this, this violent uh, right wing that is anti-democratic, uh, anti um, and represents the right wing forces throughout the entire region. So I urge people to to watch what's happening. We have a number of articles in Black Agenda Report um, covering this situation in Colombia, uh, and for the next two weeks there will be more as we head for the election that's taking place on May 29th.
Yeah, the polls are indicating that uh, Petro uh, and the historic pact coalition uh, with uh, Francia uh, polled at 43.6% of prospective first round votes, while his closest rival, which is the center right, uh, Federico Gutierrez, trailed him uh, at 26.7%. And, and the potential of the historic pact winning this election is such a threat to U.S. hegemony in the region that the Colombian Inspector General's office suspended the mayor of Medellin, uh, Daniel Quintero, uh, for uh, his alleged showing support for Petro's uh, historic pact coalition. He literally made a video uh, that he published on Twitter where he put the he put a car in first gear and I guess the car rolls away and he says the change in first and the change in first is a, is a is the campaign slogan for the historic pact coalition. I mean the potential for the the historic pact to win this election is such a threat Ajamu that politicians who are sitting in office are being suspended for even showing support for the campaign and for the historic pact. I mean, this is a this is a very dangerous situation that I that I agree we should not ignore and should definitely pay attention to. Uh, least of all uh, is that we are talking about an Afro-Colombian young woman who has been the center, uh, the target of so many of these death threats. And you know, Jackie, um, Francia Marquez now is probably the most popular um, person in the country. And what what the listeners need to know also, too, is that in Colombia, uh, the president only serves for one term. So part of the concern that the right wing has, and the right wing here is, is racist as hell, is that if Gustav, uh, if, if Pedro and Francia win, uh, and she becomes the vice president. And guess who becomes the number one candidate for the next presidency? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Possibility is something they just find it almost impossible to to live with. But it also makes it very, very dangerous uh, for Francis because Francis is that one. She does she does she does Stacey Abrams. Francia is the real deal. Okay, and that's why she has so much support. Uh, from the uh, LGBTQ community and and the workers um, and women's groups and 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 the the rural workers and peasants and uh, I mean because she is in fact the real deal. You can't fake her kind of sincerity and authenticity, and it makes her a very powerful force in Colombian politics. And as a consequence, uh, it puts a, uh, unfortunately puts a a, um, a target on her back. I got to tell you, Ajamu, you are the king of shade. I'm not going to let that she's not Stacey Abrams flip. <laughs> that is, that is, I think, very indicative of both the nature and the character of politics in the United States and the choices we have in our political uh, a landscape compared to the kind of real left radical politicians uh, that are involved in the struggle in Colombia, which I think, Ajamu, for me, 
kind of brings me to this question of it, it's it's difficult for me to continue to engage in a conversation about voting in the United States when I understand that these people who participate in the Democratic Party in particular, um, they're not actual radical leftists. So we're not talking about voting for people who uh, uh, will actually produce any change. And we're not talking about uh, um, uh, cultivating people from the ground up in grassroots organizations to run for political office either. So I just feel like the conversation around voting in the United States, particularly among oppressed people, is is very, it's it's devoid of the substance that points to the fact that we don't have a lot to vote for in the first place. So, so we continue to vote for our oppression, but when we look at political movements in other countries, it politics is a very different thing. It really is life and death. And we there do seem to be more truly left radical elements involved in political struggle where voting is critical. And with the last three minutes, I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to that and maybe pull me back from my cliff of, of cynicism and just not wanting to talk about voting in the U.S. anymore. Well, no, I mean, you have, a, a, you have to make those kind of assessments. But again, the, the difference is, as you pointed out, is that friends that comes out of the movement, she represents the movement. If there's going to be participation in the electoral process in the U.S., it has to be guided uh, and controlled by the people from the bottom up. That's the issue. It's Canada's Senate now, the petty bourgeoisie controls it. Uh, it has no relationship to the needs and lives of people, working class people. And therefore, for people to conclude it's relatively uh, insignificant, in fact, even reactionary, is something that's completely uh, understandable. Yeah, this is why I support political parties like Ujima People's Progress Party in Maryland, who are doing exactly that. They are taking a platform. They have crafted a platform for the working class, mostly black people, and it's being run by working class, mostly black people. That's the kind of politics we need. That's the kind of politics we have to cultivate. And we are running short on time because this empire is collapsing. Whether we know what to do with the ashes or not, it is collapsing. So we need to organize, 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 like our lives depend on it, because guess what? They do. But we're out of time for today. I want to thank Ajamu Baraka so much for joining me. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. And until then, peace. By any means necessary.